0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Newsflash, and we have a very special episode for you here today because joining me, I have obviously writer at Jacobin and author of Bigger Than Bernie with Megan Day, who literally wrote the book about what to do uh, after the, the tough Bernie loss and really laying out uh, the future groundwork. So I'm very, very pleased uh, to have Mike Utrecht on to talk to you today and about a variety of things. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: We can start a little little bit with some uh, non-quote unquote Bernie-related news and talk a little bit about the um, coronavirus. And the CDC has just recently outlined two ways to uh, shorten recommended quarantine times for people exposed to the virus. But that is, uh, it's it's very nice for that. But there are kind of a lot of uh, political issues. Um, that that are at play and will be at play with the relief and in the vaccine. Um, first, I I do want to start by ask like, what has been your kind of read on the government response, especially kind of from from the Democratic side, and and what is the what is the outlook for future possible relief, maybe in a Biden administration, from what you understand?
1: To me, it's totally insane that the Democratic Party has not been leading a robust campaign and robust demands for significant economic relief. I mean, you can't say, of course, that the Democrats have done nothing on this front, but it it blows my mind that, for example, Joe Biden did not stake his entire presidential campaign on the fact that Americans are desperately hurting right now across the board you name it you know we st- even though the worst of the uh, recession is over uh, it's still a crushing recession right now it's still crushing levels of unemployment people are struggling to make basic payments like rent i mean we all know the statistics about the state of america and economic inequality before the coronavirus pandemic and now it's just been uh, so so much worsened by this and and you would think that the ostensibly left party of a country would be the ones who are beating the drum saying we are going to provide you with robust economic aid. And the Democrats have not done that. And that's astonishing. And we should really uh, be wondering why that is the case. Uh, I assume we're going to be seeing some kind of uh, significant economic relief coming, certainly once Biden takes office in 2021. And there are obviously proposals floating around right now for new relief measures, but I, it, it's it's still shocking to me the the timidity with which the Democratic Party is uh, approaching this question and, and that it wasn't central to every single Democrat's campaigning, at least on a national level, in the last election cycle.
0: Yeah, it really has been quite apparent how much of the... Uh... Away from substantive issues the Democrats have, especially with, with Joe Biden being at the top of the ticket, have uh, campaigned on. Um, do you worry that like some of this, for example, the $908 billion, billion, billion dollars of relief package that's been floated by, uh, I believe, a compromise of Susan Collins and Joe Manchin, um, do you believe like packages like that go... Uh, far enough to really address some of the most important and kind of like biggest problem areas that are in the American economy right now? And, and what would be some of like the biggest ones to focus? Like what are the best in your mind suggestions for like fair, equitable relief to restart the economy?
1: Well, what I would suggest is basically what is being put forward right now by people like Cory Bush and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilan Omar. I mean, the list is not complicated there should be comparable monthly payments to all workers such that they do in places like uh, the you know throughout Europe uh, you know hold people let you know let people uh, hold their jobs so that they don't have to uh, be unemployed and, and there's not this wrenching uh, upheaval in the economy you know bernie sanders proposed $2000 monthly payments that seems the bare minimum for what people should be getting right now forgiveness of rent and mortgage payments uh you know student loan forgiveness uh even though we're not currently paying on our student loans uh the clock is ticking for when that's going to restart and joe biden is proposing some amount of student debt relief but i'm i'm very worried i mean for example i think that the current proposal is ten thousand dollar student debt relief in the uh new proposed aid package uh that's that's a decent start but i have a real worry on on his ability to uh go beyond that which we all know is what desperately needed right now i mean uh to go you know the 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 list of things that need to be done on this front uh is not difficult to come up with uh, and there are plenty of uh solid proposals being advanced by left elected officials and plenty to look to for, uh, in europe and much of the rest of the world about what the economic what, what good economic relief uh, should look like. Uh, but, you know, that's never something that the Democrats have uh, indicated any willingness to do, uh, which is, I suppose, why I'm grateful that we have a handful of left elected officials now at the national level who are willing to put those those demands forward. But we're, we're not anywhere near actually being able to win those kinds of demands anytime soon.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems like it would be a lot more just even politically, at the bare minimum, it's sensible for Democrats to try and push some more of an, of an aggressive uh, relief plan. We know why the Republicans don't. They were really in power for the whole crisis, and they're, of course, trying to not really serve the, the, the working man or the average American. But what would you say is the political incentive for people like uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi kind of water down these proposals when there is so, like, so much like, desperation clearly out there?
1: This is a fascinating question that you could ask about the Democratic Party on a whole range of issues I mean I don't see what the benefit well certainly if you mean voter i mean party voter would uh greatly benefit from the this kind of robust economic relief there you know the the so many average people in the country are are suffering right now uh it would be good politics to to offer them real relief, but Biden, for whatever reason, whether it is out of fealty to the corporate donors that he has served his whole life, or whether it's because he's afraid of being tarred a socialist, obviously that was what the Republican anti-Biden campaign was focused on, was you know saying that the Democrats are all controlled by these socialists, and so what, what smacks of socialism more than giving everybody $2,000 a month check or offering them financial relief from debt or from rent and mortgages i mean maybe he's afraid of being attacked from from the right which is a fear that he's had his entire career i mean it doesn't make any sense to me though why you it, it, it is good politics <laughs> to give people money that t- tends to lead people to like you when you give people money and uh the party i mean you know i i think that the Who who knows what, what, you know, what could have changed the outcomes of uh, the 2020 election, whether or not the Democrats could have won a more overwhelming victory, whether they could have more clearly uh, gained more seats in the House and more clearly taken back the Senate. Uh, If, uh, who knows, you know, it's all just speculation, but I have a very strong hunch that this election would have looked a lot different if the Democrats had staked their entire election on their insisting that they were going to be a party that were going that was going to provide that kind of relief to people and they didn't do it and didn't work out too well for them
0: yeah especially when it's so clear the contrast right it's it's such a such a big difference um a, a big thing that we are obviously all looking forward to is some of the positive news about this vaccine that's coming out but of course that uh, doesn't come without its downsides uh, because we are dealing with the big pharma here and some of these uh, probably, I'd say, the most promising vaccine is by uh, Pfizer, and they have been very, very clear about accepting no public money so they can maybe turn around and really raise raise prices. Do you worry about the accessibility of this vaccine uh, when it comes to getting it to the Americans who need it most and maybe people having a lot of whether it be insurance or high cost barriers to pay
1: in general this pandemic has shown for everybody in case anybody needed additional demonstration how insane it is to run a health system on the private profit motive because the incentives of the system are to make money rather than to keep people healthy uh, we didn't need the coronavirus to show us this, but certainly the, uh, the pandemic has uh, yet again driven that home. And in fact, suggested that the running a system on this kind of model is dangerous from a public health perspective, precisely because you have to ask the kind of questions that you just asked about things like vaccine provision. I mean, this should be a pretty straightforward thing. There should be a publicly controlled health system that handles the research and development for a vaccine and develops it in the public good because i think we all agree that it's sh- this is a public health crisis like public in the in the in the real sense of the term uh, and so there should be decisions made about how to fight it that best benefit the public and w- when you have multiple vaccines being developed by gigantic pharmaceutical companies that have in mind at the end of the day they're, they're they they do not exist to serve the public good right they they at the end of the day they don't develop a vaccine for the coronavirus because they best want to fight the coronavirus at the end of the day their their incentive is to make gobs of private profit for their executives and shareholders so this is this is an insane way to i mean the very fact that we have multiple vaccines being developed at the same time i mean i was listening to uh Uh, some, I think maybe Brian Lehrer's show on WNYC the other day. And uh, I think he asked uh, one of his guests, well, there are three, uh, three vaccines in development right now. Do you worry that people are going to say, well, I only want this vaccine because I read this article about it, Uh, you know, but rather than, you know, just having one vaccine that everybody gets, they're going to sort of haggle over consumer choices what what an insane question why Why? that's not the most efficient way to develop a vaccine there should not be competition driving uh who can come up with the best vaccine fastest quickest like there there should be a this should be a public uh project that we're all invested in and that our public resources are funding uh there's going to be all kinds of grotesqueries that come out of the fact that uh we have to i mean there are already all these grotesqueries that come out of this fact right and i always come back to the uh the idea that like in a moment like this we need to be able to depend on uh, a public health system you know when people get sick uh and we're worried that they have coronavirus they should be able to contact health officials and doctors, nurses, etc., seek treatment when they need it. Uh, Not doing so will mean the greater spreading of this plague that we're uh, in the middle of. But people, after decades of, you know, after never having had a public health system, after never experiencing what it's like to have a system that exists to serve their needs, they, they, people associate, myself included, associate going to the doctor with having to Shell out enormous amounts of money that they don't have. Uh, so this is the wrong mentality that you want to have when you're in the middle of a of a pandemic like this. Uh, and you know we're gonna we we've seen I I, I you know I have no scientific data to, to back this up, but I, I I'm positive that that is part of the reason why uh, we ha- still have such an enormous uh, spread of the of the virus at at this point. You know the worst in the world. Uh, because people are so conditioned to see the health system as a as a way to, to, to extract more and more money from them uh, rather than as something that exists to serve their needs.
0: Yeah, it is definitely a very... And when you have a system like that, it's so tough to like kind of get in the mindset to demand more and kind of like push for change in a better way there. Um, do you want to switch gears a little bit from this virus to the administration that really kind of oversaw... A lot of all the chaos, which is the kind of Trump administration and the transition. We'll talk a little bit about that. And one of the biggest topics over the last twenty, twenty-five days or so has been obviously the from the results of the election coming out, trickling in very slowly. This fear, kind of, of a coup attempt or some type of attempt by Trump to overturn the election results. Um, how? Uh, what do you make of the kind of response to that? And what response do you think, now that pretty much it's over, uh, is uh, appropriate? Are you one of these kind of people who says, "Oh, it's it's kind of something to to laugh; off. it's not really a big deal"? Uh, or is it something? Do you do you think that speaks to a broader, more serious problem?
1: Well, if you pay any attention to anything, certainly to any of the the quote unquote coup attempts, uh, it's really you, 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 it is not possible not to just crack up at the sort of Keystone Cops style attempt to, you know, launching the launching the latest volley in your attempt to declare a coup and declare martial law from the, you know, Four Seasons landscaping in the outskirts of Philadelphia. I mean, like, you know, nobody can take that particularly seriously, uh, and we should laugh at it because it is absurd. On the other hand clearly what was wrought by four years of donald trump should be terrifying to people and the the liberal response to sort of uh you know wants to treat trump as this unique evil uh that has sort of like emerged almost out of, of nowhere and and now that he's gone we can sort of go back to go back to normal go back to brunch or whatever i think that's that's wrong but i do think people are, are were right to note that this this was a uniquely uh i mean what was being created by the four years of the trump administration was horrifying to see the the increasingly increasing detachment from reality uh the stoking of groups like QAnon I mean this is not good stuff I uh remember seeing a poll that was floating around social media at one point that said you know asked a question that was like uh, this is maybe 2 or 3 months ago uh, number of coronavirus deaths acceptable or unacceptable and some overwhelming percentage of democrats said unacceptable and a majority of Republican respondents said acceptable. And to me, if that's the terrain upon which we're operating, just this like, you know, open armed embrace of the sweet release of death, like let mm-hmm. the bile, the bodies pile up to the sky. It's all fine. Like anything is, is uh, any amount of death. whatever. I mean, that's really, grotesque and horrifying and uh we should all be very glad that that project was stopped but i worry precisely because of what i was talking about with the democratic party earlier the 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 shape of the democratic party at this moment that trump is not the last that we have seen of this kind of politics particularly in the face of such a weak t opposition from the democratic party i mean as long as we don't have a party that is actually speaking to the multiple overlapping crises that are engulfing the society and the planet right now it offers these opportunities up to figures like Trump or even more terrifying the next person who comes along who is not a keystone cop type who who you know is actually uh coherent who who actually you know doesn't fire their staff every new staff every other day who can actually like keep their attention on something for more than five minutes uh and can actually you know use some of the kind of uh, uh you know raw right-wing populist uh exhortations that trump uh used but do it in a competent way i mean we should all be terrified of that that is a I mean, Trump did not accomplish very much in his four years in the White House. The most substantive positive achievement, you know, positive in the sense of actually doing something uh, we can point to was his gigantic tax cut for the rich. But, you know, besides that, he he really did not do the kind of damage that, say, the last Republican president before him did George Bush. Right. He didn't uh, invade a foreign country and engulf the region in blood for uh, years and decades, for example, um, he, he, through his negligence, of course, he hel- led to help lead to the deaths of, of more than a quarter million people, but he didn't actively do anything that, that led to that kind of bloodshed. But if you had somebody else uh, who, as I said, is more competent, if you had the competence of the Bush administration, with the uh, right wing populist appeal of the Trump administration, that is a terrifying thought. To behold and I worry that that could be in our very near future
0: yeah I think that is definitely a very interesting concept of someone like do you think the, like the politics of someone like a Josh Hawley or the uh, very much antagonistic of the elites on, on like on Twitter a very tough rhetoric taking on against things like China and big tech do you think that kind of politics will will break through and it be the future of the the GOP and really resonate with people Um or, or like, what, what do you see the future brand of the GOP?
1: Well, th- this is a, a question that you know many people who are far smarter than me are wrestling with right now. I mean, there are clearly multiple paths coming out of this. I mean, on the one hand, Josh Hawley is of of a type who's trying to beat beat one kind of path uh, that is that kind of right wing populist path. Uh, there will be some people who try to bring the Party back to its you know golden quote unquote pre Trump uh, reactionary days. Uh, I don't think that there is an immediate future for much of those kind of politics. I mean, clearly, like when you've got Republican voters, a you know, majority of them in a poll saying, "Let everybody die," you know, corona more coronavirus deaths, the better. Uh, there, there's not much of a stomach for you know Mitt Romney style Republican politics but uh the Hawley types are I mean th- they're the ones who are really we should be keeping an eye on that they're uh the, yeah the, the, there's so much Tr- Trump has shown that that is a very rich veined tap uh and so we can assume that there's going to be much more of that and in in some ways some more horrifying versions of that kind of right-wing populism coming
0: Yeah, and I did think it was interesting that we kind of saw that maybe a little bit manifesting through the results of the 2020 election where we saw these losses of uh, kind of uh, minority voters in a way that was not very large. Of course, the large majority of minority voters still did support the Democratic Party and Joe Biden, but especially in very key areas, for example, mostly southern Florida and southern Texas that probably may have cost uh, Joe Biden success in these states because of his turnout uh, elsewhere in suburban areas was so high. All he really needed was those kind of uh, traditional Democratic Latino voters to come out and support him, and they didn't. Um, Do you think that... Does does that worry you in terms of the future of the the Democratic Party and their uh, ability to resist figures uh, that, that could come down the line?
1: Yes. I think that that is something that is another product of the Democrats' refusal to adopt a robust working class agenda combined with the fact that there is this clear belief that has been present for years at this point that voters of color are some kind of monolith and that the Democrats just have those on lock and there is something congenital to black and brown people that makes them vote for Democrats and that that can never be dislodged and I remember thinking about this and before uh the before the election results even came like listening to the rnc for example the republican national convention and hearing the really it was clearly a top line priority item for the republicans to have speakers of color at the rnc uh talking very explicitly about why the republicans are not in fact racist but are their home as a as a voter of color whoever was speaking in some cases outflanking the democrats from the left in some ways on some issues like prison reform and, and, and you know uh, uh, ending mass incarceration of course those that all those appeals were hollow but you know they were pretty good at uh, ha- putting people up on stage who uh, made you made you think that maybe they weren't so hollow um and this is the this is the fruit of of several decades worth of democrats just assuming that democr that the vote votes from people of color are theirs and that there is some kind of inborn uh, uh yeah an inborn democrat as <laughs> a democrat gene uh, mm-hmm. that, you know the, the racial sciences is that the people of color in this country are born of the democrat gene and that's and to to add to that, not just that there's that Democrat gene, but that some hollow appeals on uh, identity, sort of like speaking the right phrases uh, that are determined by you know sort of like diversity consultants or whatever uh, within the Democratic Party. That that is what voters of color want uh, is to say the right words on on the right things or whatever. Uh, and they will be a combination of that with the Trump administration's obviously horrific reactionary policies and in many cases racist policies on, on questions like immigration, that that just means that automatically that will turn into Democratic votes from from black and brown voters. And we saw that that is not the case, just in the same way that we saw in 2016, that people thought that Hillary Clinton running for the presidency would uh, obviously produce uh a, landslide of female votes for Hillary Clinton that was not the case like a majority of uh, at least of uh, white women if I remember correctly uh, voted for Trump over uh, Hillary Clinton and so this this kind of there's this demographics is destiny argument that is so prevalent within uh, the Democratic Party and this should be the result of this election should be a real wake-up call to the party to realize that that's not the case and in fact what Voters of color, uh, again with the heavy air quotes around that uh, that phrase, want uh, it, substantively is the same as a as what what working class voters of all kinds want. There needs to be a, a substantive working class agenda that will prevent the Republicans uh, from making these kind of incursions into the Democratic Party base uh, that that are able to you know in the near future obviously there's not going to be like a for example a majority of black voters turning to republicans but i think we are going to continue to see the kind of appeals that we saw from the republicans during trump's administration uh, for voters of color are going to they're going to say to them like we are not racist and in fact like these democrats uh want to you know talk down to you or don't believe that they actually have to deliver you anything substantive we're going to keep hearing that kind of rhetoric. And I, 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 unless something significant changes, I think there's going to continue to be uh, important minorities of those, co- those coalitions, important you know, small percentages of those coalitions that are cleaved off and won to the, the Republicans. And uh, that's a very, that Democrats should be very disturbed by the fact that that is where the vote totals seem to be going
0: would you say the democrats need to worry about a more kind of positive vision that the republicans may be able to present cuz it, it does kind of seem like the just generally the way the republican party is they can't really say too much that they're actually going to be able to do for these voters without really kind of pissing off their much like more populist like white base you know with the evangelical voters and all that so what what is the if there is any like what is the appeal that is uh kind of the positive appeal that the GOP can make to to voters of color or have made
1: well that's uh what is the positive appeal I mean the whole republican agenda at this point isn't much of a positive agenda it is you know as as many people have said like there literally was no republican platform this year the platform seemed to be own the libs Mm -hmm. uh so that if, if that's the platform, if that is what the party stands for, and they're still able to command the kind of, you know, they're able to get 70 million people or however many people to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, they're going to, they're going to keep going that they don't, they don't need to offer anything positive because the Democrats aren't offering anything positive either. And so that, that is a, another sort of dystopian vision of, uh, where our politics are going this is sort of like a lack of a positive agenda from anyone. Uh, there are just these sort of hollow cultural appeals going back and forth, uh, and no, nothing ever changes. Everything gets worse. Our lives continue to be immiserated and, and that's why the Democratic Party there's a, there's such an opening here. that seems so clear to me. I don't understand why the Democrats refuse to take it because the the advancing of a positive agenda uh, especially one rooted in dealing with the wrenching economic pain that so many people are dealing with right now is to me the only thing that can that is an adequate pushback against that agenda of owning the libs like if you if you just operate on that cultural terrain that sort of libidinal terrain uh you know Well, owning the libs is fun for people and they're going to keep choosing that if that's if if they're if they have to choose between two hollow cultural appeals and one of them is owning the libs, they're probably going to go with that. Uh, So Democrats need to put forward something actually tangible and substantive to actually push back against that.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about some of the uh, the ways to to push that back. And probably one of the, uh, our personal uh, favorite, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening to the show, I assume, would agree, is kind of more left wing politics. And that path can be uh, different for a lot of people. I'm just curious, how what was your first kind of introduction from maybe going from or getting into politics and maybe going from more liberal to more left wing to socialist?
1: Well, my path i'm 32 years old and my path was pretty common for people who came to radical politics you know pre bernie sanders in the in the the you know late 90s 2000s uh which was i as a teenager got involved in the punk scene in west michigan where i grew up which exposed me to anarchism and veganism and critiques of consumerism and uh, uh, what we would now call it kind of lifestyleist politics and, and sort of subcultural politics that uh, claimed radical politics very seriously, but was not really interested in doing mass politics, certainly not interested in anything as, as foolish as elections, for mm-hmm. example, or things like the labor movement. Uh, and that I went down that road for a long time uh, until I sort of continued reading and got involved in the labor movement when i was in college through united students against sweatshops which is a student labor group the most important student labor group in the country uh and and that took me down a different path and and got me to realize some of the shortcomings of the this kind of uh ultra left style politics that that had that had brought me to critiques of capitalism when i was a a teenager i'm, I'm grateful for those experiences in some ways i wish they hadn't happened in other ways but overall i'm glad that people get to young people get to skip that step um i would i would suggest skipping that step uh i i i learned a lot about politics through those years but uh i also picked up some sort of bad uh, political habits and and some of those political habits are still present with us there's still a kind of anarchisty. uh uh, Lifestyle—I should say—lifestyleist anarchisty uh, flavor of a lot of what we do. A suspicion of electoral politics. A uh, emphasis on personal choices that is uh, not the way to change the world. But uh, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm glad that there's now left-wing media outlets like Jacobin, where I work, and there is the Democratic Socialists of America as the most important socialist organization in the United States. Uh, they're they're on a much better path than the one that was dominated by the um, the with those kind of ultra left currents in the in the 90s and the 2000s when i got politicized
0: yeah um and of course you mentioned the the involvement of bernie sanders and everything with with kind of left wing politics can be divided into <clears throat> a like a pre-bernie period and kind of a post-bernie period of course with um, 2016 and how did you if you were, uh, how did you get involved with uh, Bernie in twenty sixteen When, when did you kind of get a sense that he would be a different type of candidate?
1: It's a good question. Um, you know, I my story is that so by by twenty sixteen or twenty fifteen when Bernie first ran, I had been a, a radical for over a, a decade, radical of some sort for over a decade at that point, and I was working for. Uh, jacobin or had worked for jacobin at that point i was an editor i think in 2015 2016 i was working as an editor in these times magazine after having worked at jacobin for a little while so i was a, a socialist magazine editor but i did not believe that the politics that i claimed could really have mass purchase in america i was like yeah this is the right thing to do but I don't think I, I bought the line, right, that we hear about the United States, which is that it's uniquely allergic to anything that max of socialism and class politics. And uh, so I was contented to toil in obscurity and never have my politics really catch on at a national level. I was just like, yep, that's the. That's the life I've chosen for myself. You know, it's it's a noble one, but it will be an mm-hmm. obscure one that, that never really amounts to much. And lo and behold, Bernie Sanders proved to me that that was wrong, uh, that there actually was a hunger out there for that kind of politics. And his first campaign, I just learned that there was a mass audience for this stuff. I, I never really believed that Sanders could win the presidency. But then in 2020, there were many moments where I actually found myself thinking, maybe he actually is going to to pull this thing out. Maybe, you know, I think at one point after he had, I mean, Pete Buttigieg was declared the winner of Iowa, but Bernie got more votes. And after Nevada, I remember thinking to myself, well, Bernie has won the most votes in all of these primaries so far, primaries and caucuses maybe he's gonna win everything maybe he's gonna win all what if he wins all the primaries and caucuses, which is such an absurd thing to consider in hindsight, but that was the kind of uh, you know the the fervor pitch at which uh, things are the fever pitch at which uh, we were operating at that point. Um, you know in hindsight it was always the most likely outcome that Bernie was going to lose given what he was up against and given that this um, this campaign was such a uh, the two campaigns were such a it was like a shortcut seemed to present itself it as like a cheat code all of a sudden uh, mm. presented itself in our politics uh, because anybody on the left, you know, before 2015 would have said like, well, the way that we build our politics is sort of slowly through, you know, building up a base. And, you know, maybe if we're going to engage in the electoral arena, we win some city council races here and maybe we work our way up. There's a sort of steady progression. The graph is, is a sort of slow and steady rise. Uh, but instead Bernie just out and runs for president, and we all of a sudden think that, wow, maybe this, maybe we were going to go from socialism being almost completely dead as an ideology in 2015 to having a socialist become the most powerful person in the entire planet in 2020. And, uh, you know, it's, it sounds absurd to say now, but that's, that's what it felt uh, at the time. Uh, and so, yeah, as I said, it was always most likely that he was going to lose, but I'm very grateful that he kind of jump-started the socialist movement in the United States, that he showed the importance of vying for positions like the presidency and elected office generally. He helped cohere the newly reborn socialist movement through the Democratic Socialists of America. He inspired people like AOC and Cory Bush and others to run for office, and now they're in office and are uh, advancing left demands so uh, I'm I'm very uh, extreme look great we all are sure our politics would look the way that they do today if it weren't for him running for president
0: yeah and I, I really have kind of noticed what you you reference about this this sense of uh, a lot of people just getting into and really being inspired by Bernie Sanders and seeing his campaign in 2016 getting very like this kind of me what i had i first like found out really about bernie sanders after the kind of 2016 campaign i got very excited for the 2020 campaign and felt very like very confident not really understanding being relatively new to politics and really relatively new to kind of like leftism ideology that like it was such a far and uh such a long road ahead that so many of you guys had um um worked to build up um so I, and I do want to um, ask a little bit about kind of the Bernie twenty twenty campaign, and getting in, in a little bit uh, more specifically, um, what would you say were, in terms of strategy were were the differences and kind of similarities from the twenty sixteen and twenty twenty Bernie Sanders campaigns? Because um, from what I understand, they they were uh, quite different, um, and and what what do you think some of those more effective strategy changes were in in twenty twenty?
1: Well, I think Bernie, like me had a had a different sense of the actual possibility of him winning in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. I think that in in twenty sixteen he maybe came came to realize that he was running more than a protest campaign that he might actually have had a shot uh, late in the campaign, but certainly like twenty twenty from the get go was a campaign that was run by somebody uh, or run for somebody who was actually serious about winning the presidency of the United States from the jump um you know there are pet theories that people like to advance everybody's got their theories about about people who say for example that uh bernie lost in 2020 because he adopted more of the rhetoric of the kind of of social justice left he he mm. uh was i don't know uh more willing i mean for, for some people it's like well he talked about racism and that was what <laughs> did him in which is a theory that i find absurd uh i mean it's it's more borne out on the people who say that they're they're like irrational and frankly reactionary antipathy towards much of the the existing you know left uh the the, the and and often like bizarre and, and racist uh, uh the approaches to things like you know the movement to uh defund the police but uh so i don't that's not why i think uh he lost certainly uh anybody who believes that is is absurd um but i mean certainly what what we saw this time around uh was a, a it was the democratic fields for one thing was different i mean in 2016 he was up against a uniquely loathed candidate, Hillary Clinton. And I don't think anybody really understood how loathed she was until we actually saw what he, she actually lost an election against Trump this time around. There was a spread out democratic field. And then of course the consolidation of Mm. the democratic party around Joe Biden is something that is unprecedented, but we, nobody should be surprised by that. Nobody should be, uh surprised that you know amy amy klobuchar Pete Buttigieg joe biden what's the real substantive difference between any of them i mean they're all part of the same project within the democratic party so we shouldn't be surprised when they decide to you know consolidate their forces around joe biden uh Pete Buttigieg knows that he's got him you know how how many 10 other uh electoral cycles that he can run for president and <laughs> so he can he can wait he's not he's not going anywhere Um, I guess one thing that is different that is worth mentioning is that I remember before Bernie decided to run for president in 2016, there were calls for Elizabeth Warren to run for president. And I think there's some reporting that suggests that Bernie himself thought that Elizabeth Warren should run for president in 2016, but she didn't decide to do that and she didn't go up against Hillary Clinton, which I think speaks to her orientation towards the party. She didn't want to go up against uh, a, a, a you know key member of that party's leadership, uh, despite Hillary Clinton's record of terribleness. Uh, and so, but in 2020, she, she as in Elizabeth Warren, did decide to run, I think because Bernie showed that there was a lane for someone to run uh, on the left or from a progressive point of view. Um, well i don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist and say that she decided to do that in order to undercut bernie sanders but certainly that was the effect of her running i mean uh if she had uh run it, well, if she had not run if she had dropped out sooner if she had consolidated if she had endorsed bernie when it was clear that she had really no hope going forward if she, uh, all of these things uh If they had changed, the the electoral outcome could have changed. And uh, I think in the future, we're going to see more people. We already see more people who are taking the kind of Elizabeth Warren route, which is, uh, you know, they see that there is this kind of bold left wing politics that's being advanced by Bernie Sanders and people who support him. uh, That is often being done under the banner of democratic socialism. They don't want to use that scary word. Uh, but they want to run on progressive politics, and they often will do so in ways that undercut genuine left-wing politics um, and their kind of weak T version of left-wing politics. Uh, if if Elizabeth Warren's campaign is any indication, doesn't have a huge constituency out there, uh, but can play an important spoiler effect. So I, I don't think that means that we should view elizabeth warren as sort of like uh, an enemy on the level of a donald trump or something who we have to crush but certainly that dynamic is there of uh liberals like her uh popping up uh to try to occupy some of the space that is currently being occupied by socialists and potentially undercutting the socialist project going forward
0: yep and didn't even end up from what we see now at least in the cabinet, so a little bit unfortunate there what for... was it for? what was it all yeah, for? A lot of people <laughs> saying that uh um yeah and it it, it is uh definitely a big thing now that we see uh, this cabinet uh unfolding with people like you know near Tandon and possibly Rahm Emanuel. um it it does definitely raise a lot of questions about what types of resistance that people in kind of the Bernie Sanders left wing of the party should take um and what uh cuz it can kind of feel tough like what are you going to do to stop it uh, they they already have they're already in the in the power in the seat of power in government uh Joe Biden is so what what is the best attack forward for left wingers to take
1: say the uh the the w- w- attack on like how to fight yeah how how, how to be, yeah, how how to be Yeah,
0: how to be effective in uh, the Biden years.
1: I think that people shouldn't have any illusion about what they are up against in the Biden years. The we the, people like me, socialists, are not the left wing of the Biden coalition. You know, Biden doesn't see us as one constituency that he has to uh make happy he, mm-hmm. he he really does see us as enemies to be destroyed and so we should understand that and, and this of course is like the whole conundrum of american politics for the left which is that we're stuck with this awful party uh megan day and i write about this in in bigger than bernie we're stuck with this awful party that uh hates us <laughs> <laughs> which is a really unfortunate uh scenario to be stuck in uh, but it's not going to change, and Joe Biden is going to continue to view us that way. and view us as the enemy, and so we we shouldn't we sh- we should only see uh, our our ability to win anything decent, to wrench anything, to wring anything decent out of him, as coming from uh, our you know ability to do political damage to him, to uh, to fight him. Um, that kind of sobriety about what the place of left-wing politics is within what the democratic party is up to is going to be crucial going forward and so that just means assuming a position of constant combativeness with these people uh because they that's the way they view us that's the way that i mean you know the fact that biden ran on a you know saying over and over again i'm not the socialist i beat the socialist i mean he he, he's so clearly wants to distance himself from uh left wing politics of any kind he so clearly as i said views it as something to be defeated that we 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 should be have that same clarity that joe biden has and and should approach him as such over the next 4 years
0: and for, what would you say is the best position to which like you can be constantly competitive uh from the biden administration because of course we have people like aoc and cory bush and jamal boom and all these great people in the house of representatives and some in the Senate as well, uh, but they are obviously very small. They're no, not really a majority, or, or definitely not a majority, and maybe they could take some votes away in some cases, but uh, what was the best way? Should we look inside the people, like electoral politics, House of Representatives, all those great members of the squad, or is it better to look out uh, and kind of from with, with the people, as they say, build the us part of the movement, and how do we go about doing that?
1: Well, I guess to exa- answer that question, I'd give an example of where I live in Chicago, which is that Chicago elected half a dozen city council members who are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. We also write about this in the in Bigger Than Bernie, and the, so that's you know six out of fifty, twelve percent of the council, kind of an incredible number, the most that any city anywhere in the United States has, and. The temptation in thinking about that string of victories is like, oh, there must be something unique about Chicago. There must be, I don't know, uniquely charismatic and effective people willing to run for elected office, and we need to find more of them and have them run for office. That's true, but what is specific about Chicago is not that we happen to find half a dozen socialists willing to run for city council, but that the political terrain of this city was transformed a decade ago with the change in leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union, which then went on strike in 2012 and has gone on on strike numerous times since and has really emerged as the left pole of politics in this city. And they've cohered a pole with other progressive unions and progressive communities to engage in the kind of militant action that the CTU has taken and has taken strong stances against austerity, that is now the left pole of politics in this city as comparison to the neoliberal Democratic Party politics of of the right pole, uh, represented by our current mayor, Lori Lightfoot. And so in transforming the Chicago Teachers Union, in being willing to go on strike numerous times, in cohering that political pole, that is what opened up the space for half a dozen socialists to win election to the Chicago City Council. Uh, and so that's a long way of saying that it's not a kind of either or question, like, do we do the Chicago Teachers Union style unionism and go on strike, or do we run people for office? The the way that you can open up the political space for victories like The half dozen city council members is precisely by building up Mm. democratic militant anti-austerity you know uh, democratic unions small d democratic unions uh, like the chicago teachers union so those two tasks are really two of the most central tasks going forward is rebuilding the labor movement which which radicals have a really key role to play in Uh, And then uh, running people for office in the space that can be created by that kind of uh, militant unionism.
0: And, um, yeah, that's definitely some very, very clear uh, goals to set and pathway to to look forward to Um, before I let you go there, because I have been uh, holding on to you for a, a little bit here on this hope you don't mind but I do want to uh, end a little bit with a hopeful question like what in your mind is the biggest thing uh, left wingers have to look forward to is it good uh, pickups in 2022 possibly more members of the squad or should we maybe be looking towards a Bernie style candidate in 2024
1: well I think broader than even those particular questions is the clear sense that people on the left should have that there is an opening for our politics right now there is an opening that has not existed for at least half a century if not or maybe a better opening than has existed for at least half a century if not longer than that for this kind of politics and politics is weird weird things can happen you know, there could be a new red scare in 2021 and I end up in jail. <laughs> All the rest, me and the rest of the Jacobin staff and, you know, the leaders of DSA and, you know, the leaders of the Chicago Teachers Union. Who knows that the, the, there is historical precedent for such a thing happening in the United States that then destroys the left. So that's always on the on the horizon. By the way, that, that often happens when the left is in a period of upsurge. So uh, definitely something to be aware of, that kind of state repression. Um, So. You know That could happen, but uh, for right now, we have a really unique opening that can be taken advantage of on multiple fronts, whether it is through the kind of union organizing I was talking about, or fighting for demands like student loan jubilee, or affordable housing fights in much of the country. You know, all of these things, there is a real opening for us uh, that can also be uh, taken advantage of through running people for office. Uh, and winning on those kind of left-wing platforms. So that should, you know, we, we shouldn't overblow, you know, the, what's, what's the, what the opportunity is. We shouldn't overestimate our strength. We should be very sober about the fact that we are still, uh, incredibly weak. We are only a minoritarian current in literally everywhere that we operate. Uh, but we have a toehold right now and we should take advantage of it. We should, uh, act with a kind of confidence and sense of urgency right now uh, at the at the understanding that this kind of opportunity is really once in a lifetime I mean I think of the people I know who got radicalized at the tail end of the 60s and into the 70s and became socialists and really carried on that flame of socialist politics through some very dark times through years in which they were totally isolated where to be a socialist was something to kind of be mocked and laughed at and seen as a kind of historical oddity uh and they held on to those politics because they believed deep down their bones that that was the, the the vision for a better society that was worth maintaining and worth fighting for uh and they did it through really lean years but now uh you know you talk to some of these older people there's They're still, despite everything that's happened, despite the end of the Sanders campaign and the many defeats that have been suffered by the left over the last couple of years, they're still ecstatic about the fact that we are operating in a totally different world right now. So we should be grateful for that, uh, we who are socialists, and we should take advantage of it because uh, historically we know that this window, when it opens, it often uh, slams shut pretty soon. Uh, so if we're smart about how we go about our organizing, uh, we can accomplish a lot right now.
0: Definitely something to take advantage of in the future. It looks bright, even though there are some crazy things happening uh, at the moment. Uh, Micah Utrecht, deputy editor of Jackman Magazine, host of the vast majority of podcasts and author of Bigger Than Bernie and Strike for America. And of course, very importantly, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is obviously a great organization that I'm sure you would agree with that statement there. Um, thank you so much for joining us and uh, have a great uh, rest of your day. Thank you very much for listening, everybody.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.